Thank you for joining me. My name is Russell Trapper-Jones on Broadcast Focus, a channel which looks at the informal side of the broadcast and media industries. I'm trying to look at um, the people and the technology that put it together, and I'm really pleased to introduce you to Gerard Phillips, who's with me today. Hi, Gerard. Morning, Russell. Thanks for thanks for being here. And um, what we want to talk about today, really, um, is is understanding you know how you got where where you are because you're with Arista now um, as a systems engineer. Is that right? Yeah. What does that entail? Um, it entails kind of uh, working with working with customers and potential customers on their journey to um, build or refresh an IP based infrastructure. Um, most of the guys I work with are in the media uh, vertical. So I work with live production guys and um, I try and work out what, what their problems are and how we can solve those together. Or if we can't solve those together, um, let them know about that. Mm -hmm. That's cool. And um, I think the what's interesting and one of the things that I uh, I have at the back of my mind is you know, how, how, do, how does anybody kind of navigate, A, getting into the industry, but also um where you want to go once you're here um i remember my my journey into the industry mm -hmm. um i basically got the job that i wanted to get first time because i didn't have enough imagination to know why <laughs> what could come after that is oh well, okay what am i going to do now so how did how did you get started what was your your first kind of roles after um you know, your education yeah so i my dad was a my dad was an engineer. He used to work in the RAF fixing radars, and then he worked in the post office cool. building things. And he ended up um, he ended up for a company called Delarue building cash counting machines and selling cash counting machines. And so I, I guess I was always going to be an engineer. I mean, my bedroom was full of old resistors and capacitors and transistors, and I was busy trying to build radios and stuff. Um, and you know, when I could afford to from my paper round, I bought a Spectrum and. And I had a Spectrum in, the, in my bedroom, and I was I was one of those guys that was buying the magazines and typing all those horrible lines of codes, and, yep. and my RAM pack fell off the back, and it was didn't work anymore. So <laughs> I was always going to be an engineer. I went, I did a um, electronic engineering course at Cardiff. Um, I don't think the course was terribly good, but it taught me how to think. I think taught me how to do problem solving. Um, so I graduated in '89, and there wasn't a lot around in '89. I ended up um, went to a careers fair, and I ended up. Uh, working for a company called Link Miles, who made uh, flight simulators, um, ended up in the in the visual department, um, and that was brilliant. That, that was two years, three years spent uh, designing PCBs, building things using really old-fashioned technology that people have never heard of today. Pals and gals, uh, real real gates, um, and because we're building the visual systems you would make something and at the end of the day you could go into the lab and you could fly around Singapore airport or fly around Hong Kong or whatever you wanted to do. You go and give it a go and see what the visual system did. How, how did it project the pictures and did the pictures look like the right ones? Um, and I kind of, they hit hard times. The, the economy hit hard times. I was made redundant. I got myself a job at GC Marconi uh, working on the Eurofighter. And um, after a little while, I really, really realized I didn't like that. Um, and what was wrong with, uh, it sounds, it sounds good working on Eurofighter, but you no, know, what, what was it that, that drew, drove you away? Uh, it was very process driven, very formal. Uh, when my PCBs came back, I had to go and 
sign out resistors individual resistors i had to you know it's, it's all so everything has to be uh follow the process and everything has to be you know uh what's the right word auditable i suppose so if i change it a risk you know change a resistor in a clock driver tree from 220 ohms to 330 i had to go and fill out a form i had to give the resistor back i had to go and get a new resistor it was my life was too short um and i uh i worked for a project manager who um who was a it, it was it was hard work because we were running late and his answer to running late was just do less testing i mean i didn't design anything to not work right so i shouldn't have to test anything so i just didn't like the i didn't like the way it worked and i had a friend uh who who's um cousin i think was working at stan and wilcox in the manufacturing department and they said oh they're looking for engineers why don't you mm. you know they're only up in petersfield it's not very far away why don't you go have a chat so you've got a, a history of, of of video things so i went and had a chat and i joined joined stan and wilcox in 95 um and, and i loved it and, and i realized the thing that i really loved about uh working at stan and wilcox was the people amazing people amazing vision incredible talent amazing um amazing teamwork um the, the products the values of the business were good i mean we were looking to make products that people really really needed that were of amazingly high quality so i yeah i spent 22 years at stan wilcox as it evolved from stan wilcox all its various acquisitions and mergers and whatevers um yep. and i left i left you know 22 years later having built asics having built uh, composite decoders um so what, what were you building when you went in you know immediately after your defense roles what kind of things were uh, I, I joined a team with? yeah i joined a team that was working with ibm to um take what at the moment or at the time was cutting edge uh deinterlacing and scaling techniques and to put them into an asic and the aim was to you know at the time uh, an hd I, I arrived just as they were doing all their hd products and a, an okay. up converter or a down converter would cost tens many tens of thousands of pounds and it would be like a three ru or a two ru box and it was just rammed 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 full of fpjs and, and discrete logic and it was you know really a, a huge function and so we worked with ibm to to kind of take that sort of cutting edge the maths that the the algorithm team came out with amazing polyphase yep. filtering and and we put that into an asic um while we're putting into an asic we put a noise reducer into an asic um while we're in in the world of vhdl and building clever things in asics we built a composite decoder it's like probably one of the first um free running clock so non-synchronous composite decoders ever built um it was it was brilliant fun so the, the great thing was i was you know and it's a thing that's followed me or i followed maybe maybe it's the track i followed is just learning new stuff all the time working with smart people and learning new stuff all the time so you know vhdl was new to me composite decoding was new to me um simulating all the maths was new to me it was it was an incredible learning experience it's a big jump from from swapping resistors and yeah, filling yeah, in yeah forms to uh yeah programming fpgas yeah and so i i you know those 22 years were 22 years of of <clears throat> constantly learning something new uh, every time i thought oh, God, i've got to get out of here i'm getting bored of this <laughs> i we, we we built something different i joined a different team i ran a team whatever happened to be it was you know we, we took that fpj and we put it into um 
uh, sorry, we take that ASIC and we put it into various products. So we put it into various, um, you know, sort of semi-professional media products. We put it into a, a box we called the Interpolator, which we tried to sell into the home theater market in the US. So, um, you know, very high quality decoding, very high quality scaling uh, for use on enormous projectors in LA. So okay. spent some time at fancy kind of CES type shows. Yeah. So you got around the world as well. Did you did did you end up going trade show to trade show early on? Uh, I didn't get to go to many trade shows early on. Okay. Um, as as I kind of as I moved through, I, I moved into building kind of more broadcast based scalers and interlacers from from the ASIC we built, and then I moved on to building. Um, I built. I ran the team that built the. Um, uh, motion compensated deinterlacer and scalar, the Quasar, which was, oh, ab- I mean, yeah. it could only do up conversion, but it was unbelievably good. Um, so kind of at that time, I started to get to go to some of the trade shows. I also kind of at that time, I, I ended up not only running a team, but um, I was responsible for the product management part of the, the conversion team. So we built a lot of conversion products in all the different form factors that Snell built products in. And we, because I was running the product management team, I clearly I had to go to, to shows to see what customers wanted. So there was, yeah, there was a chunk of my time at Snell where, you know, I was on that treadmill of IBC and, and AB and all those things. So, but I, do you know what? I, like one of the things that I also discovered was um, when I was a kid, I hated the telephone. I hated, because we, you know, there was a telephone, we shared it with the neighbors. You had to pick this thing up. And the only person I ever talked to on the telephone was grandma. And she couldn't hear what I was saying, and, and I wasn't interested in what she was saying, and she wasn't interested in what I was doing. Um, so that I found that quite. Um, I find the telephone. I found the telephone stressful. And one of the amazing lessons I learned at uh, Link Miles was, um, you know, we had to build our, we do our PCB work, we designed just you know, schematics, we then we had to go and do the layout stuff. It was all bits of paper and stuff. Um, and I discovered that. If I just got off my desk and walked across to the drawing office and talked to somebody or picked the phone up and talked to somebody, magically you were at the top of the queue and magically your thing, which was important to you, but they didn't care about too much, got done. And I think yeah. it, it was um, it was a lesson in communication and how people relationships are probably the most important thing you can foster, I think. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, it's funny you, you mentioned uh, early on your spectrum and typing in the uh, the typings from the magazine. I remember when I had my um, my Amstrad, I I typed in probably about a hundred lines, all that said sound, and then whatever random parameters I put in, and I played it to my grandma down the phone, and uh, she was very polite and she put up with it for about <laughs> two minutes of random beeps down the phone, but I was really pleased with it. So uh, I, I I had a yeah, I mean that was. I think that was really a formative part of my, you know, process of becoming an engineer because the Spectrum had this kind of slightly weird memory mapped display system, and so you could go and peek and poke, which was yep. you know get and put values into this system memory, which pretty much directly mapped straight into the display. So, you know, you, I I spent hours and hours and hours pushing random numbers into random places and, and seeing that it changed the color of the border and saw that it changed to something else or it made the pixel flash or it didn't have pixels it had you know blocks of two colors that flash so yeah that that i i, I really i think i learned a lot about mm-hmm. um 
how how much you can achieve if you dig a little bit into the complexities of what is sat underneath the thing that's been presented to you. Yeah, which of course is everything that you need to be doing when you're doing FPGAs and everything else that came. Yeah, unbeknownst to you, would come later. So, sure, how do you think yeah. the um like the technology? How did the technology change over those twenty two years? Because you know, obviously it did. Um, and I guess towards the end, uh, which I guess was seven years ago now, there was a was a big move to software, or, or is that still not quite the case? Is it still a large role for other chips? Uh, yes, I think largely speaking, you're spot on. I mean, um, the it's interesting. I think we talk a lot about the move to the cloud uh, for for the last seven or eight years. We talked a lot about the move to the cloud, and I think, I think. Personally, I think looking back, we didn't really mean move to the cloud. I think what we meant was move to software, yep. move away from bespoke bits of hardware with FPGAs and mm -hmm. stuff in and, and move towards COTS-based servers. And then you yep. can make the choice. Did you own that server or was that server in the cloud? Um, and so, I mean, the you know Moore's law has continued on. Uh, well, Moore's law has, has been true for way longer than anyone ever thought it'd be true. And it continues to be true. And it's true for both x86s. Um, and for networks and for GPUs, all those things are still traveling at. I mean, I remember when when people talked about the silicon geometries going down to a micron. And I thought, ah, that'll be it. Can't ever go beyond a micron. <laughs> and of course, now we're down to three nanometers, right? So mm -hmm. these these orders of magnitude are, yep. you know, and we don't even, you know, most of the people don't know what a nanometer is, and most people don't know what the thing below a nanometer is. So surely it can't get smaller than a nanometer. But really? I, you know, physics keeps <laughs> going. It's, it's incredible. So I think. Um, one of the things that the the media or you know live production play out has it, it, technology has always been way 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 slower in the in the in the you know in the live production arena i mean the the transition from sd to hd i mean even the transition from analog to to digital and then you know sd to widescreen in the uk and then hd and uhd I mean that transition is orders of magnitude slower than the transitions that are now available in software or, or, or made capable by software compute networked mm. kit. And I think that's one of the challenges we've got. I mean, the, the some of the kind of institutional parts of the live production world, our industry, are it, it, it's tricky. It's tricky to see. It's tricky. It's tricky to kind of um, match the speed at which some parts of our industry are, work, are, are moving yep. to um, to the speed at which the infrastructure on which we're now building is moving. I mean, as an example, I suppose, you know, back when I was at Snell, we designed, um, you know, what was uh, TRO3 compliant SDI to IP converters, which, you know, mm -hmm. trans my name is on the TRO3 spec. I, I spent a lot of time on that spec with lots of other people and that, that morphed into or was standardized into 2110. Um, but, you know, back then a 10 gig port was a technically difficult thing to achieve <clears throat> for a broadcast yep. company and 10 gig was way more than we'd ever need. Right. And of course, if, if you look now, there's still a lot of 10 gig based endpoints, but if you look at, you know, current modern uh, networking Silicon 10 gig is, you know, the the trends in port speeds in the networking world, which really is data centers and enterprise and campus, is now uh, 
re really heavily weighed towards 100, 400 gig, 25 gig. 10 gig stuff is, is, is kind of disappearing away somewhere. So it's, you know, the speed at which the infrastructure can support higher data rates and therefore more agility and more flexibility and more everything else is way quicker than the, the kind of bespoke you know, bespoke products can adapt and evolve to support those. So if, you know, it becomes obvious that if you build your kit out of x86s with network cards, um, you're going to be able to move down that path quicker. I mean, the, the, soft, the whole software, uh, you know, many of the benefits of moving to software are that it, it's much more agile. You can rebuild stuff in two minutes. You can try something out in two minutes. You can build new features. You can build on open source. You can... You, you you can focus on the things that are really important to you and your product and not on, yep. you know, I don't know. I spent years and years and years building a real-time operating system to sit on our conversion products. But, I mean, who's got a real-time operating system anymore? Nobody, right? Not necessary anymore. Yeah, I know what you mean. It reminds me a bit about the um, of, of display manufacturers because they, they kind of move at their own pace, um, which is often faster than um, the broadcast world mm. wants to move. Now, it doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. There's you know there's consoles out there. There's um, there's other ways in which you can get um, higher higher resolution. But you know there's a difficulty in in delivering to you know to those screens. But you know it happens. And similarly. As you're saying, you know, networking continues up to 400, 800 gig. And the, um, it's a hassle to split out into 10 gig at that point. Yeah, I mean, the display the display story is, is, a, is a really good one. It's a really good analog of or, or example of where we are. I mean, you know, the, the display manufacturers used to be driven by the technologies that the broadcasters were using to deliver their content to home users. I mean, we had super huge square, massively deep, um, you know, CRT monitors forever, and all they had to do was decode a bit of composite out of the back of a decoder somewhere, or you know, back out of the back of an RF decoder somewhere, and and we suddenly got to a point where flat panels turned up, and then the the TV industry was being driven by the resolutions and the capabilities <coughs> of the flat panels rather than the the, the telly guys being driven okay, by what what BBC mm -hmm. wanted to deliver to your home. So, it I think, and I think all we're seeing is further and further dive, you know. Um, a blooming in that area. I mean, the, 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 um, I guess I think we can see it in, if you look at the kind of the AV market or the pro AV market, I think we continue to see, uh, that, that there's more and more fragmentation. I think possibly, you know, we have 2110, we have, um, but you very quickly move into kind of other technologies that are available and have different price performance points and NDI there's, there's lots and lots and lots of uh, audio formats. And I think, you know, audio went IP way before video sure. went IP because, of course, the bandwidths were so much lower. And it was mm -hmm. you could deliver it without compressing. You, you only needed a gig network. So the, the kind of levels of um, innovation, I suppose, in the audio market, I think, are incredible. And, of course, now that you can, you know, you can, you can easily compress stuff in a x86 server or you can buy um you know an asic from china that does it for you then the the this kind of move to you know away from bespoke bits of kit to you know server based technologies or even little nook based technologies is uh it's quite incredible and i and i think having connected it all together with standards based ip the we really are in this world where where kind of agility and what do i want to do today is almost unlimited 
audios um I mean, if you follow audio and make your predictions based on for video based on what audio's already done you you won't go very far wrong um i remember working on some special events and being pretty astounded at the number of audio endpoints you needed by the time you'd counted up every single language and every single uh talkback position and, and all this kind of stuff um and of course now we're scaling video as well in larger broadcasters to hundreds of thousands of uh you know, endpoints and things like that. So, you know, whether it's the scale or the technology, um, you know, we're, we're all getting there in one way or another. And and it's it, it's a truism today, as it always was. I mean, it's the audio bit that's the complicated bit, right? I mean, if you uh, if you look at the scale of some of the live production twenty one ten systems around the world, there's there's not many. All the big ones are built by organisations that are deploying many languages across many regions. And so, of course, mm -hmm. they've, they've had to move away from a kind of a one video plus a couple of stereo channels. They, they, they've got to deliver eight or 10 languages or something. So the, the 2110 um, kind of uh, the ability to, to the separate elements uh, component of 2110 obviously is a, is a huge benefit there. I mean, you can deliver, you know, how many channels do you need? Just, you know, whack in another multicast and six more channels down there. So we're, we're, we're ending up now when you kind of think about scaling a, you know, how, how do I work out what scale I need? You're typically, typically there's not people building 32 channel audio systems, but they could be right. So you've got a video, you've got a metadata, there's mm -hmm. more metadata standards coming and then you've got some audio. So you kind of want to think about the, at least the upper end of the scale being 34, like 32 plus one plus one multicast feeds. And, the, the complexity in the control system and the complexity in all, all the other bits and bobs is is about controlling those 32 audio channels that the rest of it is you know it's not not, not it's not simple but it's way less complex than the audio stuff yeah so i think you're right i mean wherever audio goes we'll once they fix those problems we can have it for video as well yeah i think possibly one of the only exceptions in the in the audio um side of things is is in um live cloud-based production where you've got that extra latency to get in the cloud and it doesn't really matter too much for vision mixing so it's, it's easier to do vision mixing mm -hmm. in the cloud even if you're on the ground <clears throat> but if you're if you've got your hands on the faders and, and you've got that extra latency then it really does cause problems depending on well, the type of program you do yeah i mean you talk but there are solutions to a lot of these things i mean if you look at nep's andrew's andrew hub andrew's hub and um some of the other kind of uh, you know, Discovery Eurosports Network. These are all kind of, I never really know whether to call it distributed or centralized because it's both distributed and centralized. But um, I mean, essentially they're backhauling everything from the sensors back to the data center and then they're processing it and then they're pushing it back to the the display devices in, in the remote locations if well, as necessary. Um, I think, the, I think the, the feedback I've had from everyone that's done it is that in general, there's a few little bits and bobs that you kind of do locally. I mean, most of these people will do some sort of a, a proxy locally, and some, sometimes they'll do a local audio proxy. So the feedback, you know, the local audio feedback will be cut by the same commands that are cutting the, mm. the production audio, but it, it just doesn't suffer from the audio delay. So I think what we're seeing is adapting workflows to deliver these really quite cool um, new kind of paradigms in live production i think and certainly I, i'm not i'm not seeing that i mean every single 
big system that goes in these days is making another big step in how complex they're looking to build the system based off, you know, somebody looks at Discovery Eurosport and says, well, that was complicated. And maybe at the time it was painful, but it's working. And now what should we do that's different to that? Oh, let's... Um, Let's add in some other complexity. Let's stick a uh, let's stick a, an enterprise network over the top of the twenty one ten network. Let's try that one. So um, I think we're we are we are making some really big steps in the way we build these systems to make them you know to really deliver on the on the promise that IP had when we were all talking about talking about it ten years ago, which was you know flexibility and agility and um, I think more connect well more connectivity, right? I mean, genuinely, genuinely, we have native IP connectivity from glass to glass now. If if you really try hard, mm-hmm. and I think I think what that means is that connectivity gives you creativity, gives you the ability to have more creativity. You've got more people can do more things in more places, um, can reuse the content more easily, can more quickly take that content and repurpose it to something else. So, uh, I, yeah, I. I I don't think it's going to stop, to be honest. Whether it's you know on prem or not on prem, I think that train is definitely thundering. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with your point that uh, you made earlier about um, it being software now. You know, cloud is may as well be used you know, interchangeably with with software. And, and I guess it, it's about the fact that we we had to do as an industry what was uh, easy at the time. You mm-hmm. know, we feel we need to move to software. Cloud's there. It's a greenfield site as well, which is really handy. So we can build carefully there. And now we've got the uh, a little bit more of a nuanced view of being able to, A, <clears throat> understand how to make the workflows work wherever they are, but also that the products have to, to follow. Um, but we wouldn't wouldn't be able to get there without this move to IP, whether uncompressed or otherwise. So, um, you know, it's building on all of, everything's building on top of each each other so you know without you uh coming up with your tro3 then it would be um basically impossible to do what what many of us are doing now yeah and i I think um it's interesting to think where it's all going to um i mean i we hear a lot of people talking about um private cloud now and i sometimes don't really know what they mean uh, but i think what they mean is an on-prem network um but because we've talked about cloud for a long time, I think I think as an industry we often use cloud as the metaphor for, mm. for software. Um, so I, I think we're going to end up with a lot of a lot of flexibility being built into systems. I guess I think one of the things that drove people to the cloud, not drove, but one of the, one of the reasons people took the cloud up in the first place was um, actually, you know, the the, the, the cloud providers have abstracted a lot of the complexity away that's kind of one of the one of the attractions is is you can spark up a whole load of things and connect them together and run a load of jobs and you don't have to worry about lots of the complex underlying infrastructure things um and so it allowed people to start to play with what they could do in software and learn how to do some of those things and build some of those things um without having to worry about understanding them you know the under underlying infrastructure requirements and i think um I think that's probably been a good thing. I think what it's, I think it's what it's telling us is that we all have to become a little bit more software. We have to become a little bit more, um, opera, you know, net ops and DevOps. And by that I mean, um, you know, the job of a, a broadcast engineer was quite different 
10 years ago. And if you, if you step into a cutting edge 2110 or, or any, any form of, you know, cloud software-based live production workflow these days, there's, there's a huge amount of orchestration and automation. And so um, not only do those guys need to be kind of broadcast workflow experts, they need to know what they need to connect together and how they need to connect it and how the audio works and all that other complicated stuff. They, they do all now genuinely need to be able to, uh, you know, run whatever tool set is orchestrating their cloud workloads or um, they need to be able to build a script or a bit of Python to do something clever. I mean, the, 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 the I think the skill set is moving um, towards being combined engineering. Well, it's an engineering skill set, but it, it's combined broadcast aware skill set with, I don't think you'll survive without some knowledge of how the network works and some knowledge about how scripting works and how you can you know, yeah. use a lot of these. So, I mean, everything that's half decent out has got decent API. And so if you can use that API, exactly. a bit of scripting, you can, you can do some incredible stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, to use the, the spreadsheet, idea as well i mean it used to be uh, i've genuinely been in, in in jobs where i've been <laughs> been the useful one because i've been able to use excel better than everyone else mm -hmm. uh, which is hardly anything to boast about but nonetheless you know you've got to use the tools that are, that are useful it feels to me increasingly with the size of data you got to put in um you know now you've got to be able to be able to pro programmatically get things in and out of spreadsheets and or databases uh you know, and if, for exact reasons like mm. shoving into an API and finding what what the response is, um, you know that's just it's another level. It's not necessarily any harder, um, but again, it's something that you don't necessarily get taught at school. And so you know, got, got to pick it up somewhere. I think so, and I, and I think it, it, to me, it's just problem solving again, right? It's it's problem solving in a different language. Uh, but I think you know um, there is a huge resource set out there, so. Uh, and a lot of these things are about mindset. So if you if you go and you know have a look on YouTube, uh, go and get yourself a PC, laptop, whatever. It doesn't really matter too much. Learning Python is is like the work of about you know you could you could learn reasonable basic Python in a half half a weekend of of looking at YouTube and playing with things. I mean it's it's so unbelievably accessible. And whether Python is the thing that you need to use in your job or whether it's something else. The, the underlying principles of, of being able to do a bit of relatively simple coding, a bit of object-oriented design, and uh, using a bunch of open source libraries to access APIs is, I think, I think I can't imagine, I don't, I think most of the forward-thinking broadcasters are probably looking to be, you know, recruiting people who've got those skill sets. And, and it, it's a skill set that you can pick up yourself, I think, very, very easily. And it, it, there's so much stuff out there. You know, Python is just an example. There's plenty of other things. Go, whatever you like. Um, there's virtual switches out there. There's, um, you know, you can get free versions of VMware. So you, you don't, or, 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 you know, VirtualBox, whatever. There's, there's a ton of virtualization platforms out there that are free. There's a ton of places you can go and get resources to, um, well, I'm, I'm talking just about networks, right? Um, mm -hmm. but it's, I think, I think the thing, um, you know, it's kind of, it's more wide reaching than that. So if you wanted to learn Python, I think that's easy. If you wanted to learn how networks work, you could go and build yourself a, a lab and do that just on a, on a 
decent laptop to be honest um there's um or or a raspberry pi i mean that's a great you know if you can get one these days you know um you can run ptp on a raspberry pi it's not very accurate but you could you can easily teach yourself you know what does the protocol look like how does it work how do i make it work just just on a you know less than a hundred dollars worth of cheap and cheerful hardware you stick in the stick in the understairs cupboard yeah yeah i agree there's a lot of um, good resources out there um and uh yeah I, I wonder how much i go to some places and it feels like you know the mcr hasn't changed i'm sure the computers and equipment's updated but there hasn't really been it doesn't seem like a very different place and then of course we work with other companies and they they seem fully embedded in working out how to go into the cloud so you know every 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 um companies at a different point in that journey i guess mm -hmm. and different parts are often at different points in that journey so um but yep. i think it's, it's, it's coming <laughs> well i mean i think the other thing that's worth saying is that ip isn't the answer for everybody i mean sure. you know if you if you think about you know there's lots and lots and lots of organizations out there who don't need anything more than a 64 squared router and and they're never going to do uhd so you you can argue very easily that sdi is still the right way for them because it's it's easy they understand it the scale's there it's probably lower cost it's it, it fits with a fits with their plans and it fits with their skill set so indeed um they will need uh, api i mean apis and control are, are still important and sure and at a, at a smaller scale then you know if, if it's done it's done and it's less likely to break as well mm -hmm. and you're going to be messing around with it less perhaps so sure i guess yeah, yeah that's that's a good thing there um thank you gerard for um for talking to me today um it's been really interesting how how did the um flight simulators look back then because it, it's <laughs> fascinating to me <laughs> uh yeah well they, they were huge i mean like if you had like a four window plane then there'd mm -hmm. be four More proper massive. rack yeah. units worth of compute absolutely unbelievable amounts of compute which of course now you can do that on your laptop with way Would higher it, resolution and then visually you know was it literally just massive polygons or did it look like did you feel it looked like the airport airports are supposed to be in uh it yeah no i mean there was a lot of there were tens of thousands of polygons on the screen so you couldn't really see them there was a impressive uh, we developed a thing we called photo texture and that mm -hmm. was that was as simple as the ability to over you know to lay photographic pictures over the top of polygons before that it was yeah. kind of computer rendered whatever's different mm -hmm. colors or different textures but it all looked very computery and so so when we kind of had the ability for the database guys to take a photo mm -hmm. from somewhere and stick it on the top that was that was quite that was quite amazing yeah wow but no, basic compared to what we've got these days i mean unbelievably basic sure but um yeah i don't know i've seen some vr stuff from back then and that was super basic so mm. Don't think you'd want to um, learn how to uh, fly an airplane with it. Um, okay, that's great. Really good. Thank you for for joining me. Um, uh, naturally, there is a subscribe button, and um, you know, given that we're at the beginning of the channel, do us a favour, pop um, um, pop your mouse over the subscribe button, and all will be well. Thank you very much. Um, uh, would love to speak to you again, Gerard. In the meantime, thanks a lot for joining me. Thank you very much. Bye.